Hello. Oh, you did make it. <laughs> okay. Let me see. I think apologies, your closet cam. <laughs> closet cam. Yeah. I don't do video in here, but I do audio in here because I have so many clothes that it dampens the sound. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. You're, so you're sitting on the floor. This is my laundry basket. <laughs> <laughs> my shoes are over here. I've got two rows of clothes. It's a walk-in closet. And here comes Pete Conrad. <laughs> the astronaut? <laughs> the cat. Okay. His name is Pete Conrad. <laughs> Why? Okay. After the astronaut? After the astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Stand by. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. This week, the battle to put the first woman in space. YouTube star Amy Shire title of Vintage Space has documented a contentious Cold War of a different kind. Plus, the 80s documentary sci-fi nerds have been waiting to see and willing to open their wallets for. Great Scott! That's good. Now, was that even close? That's close. Good. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. One of my all-time favorite stories about cord cutting was when I had to figure out where I was going to get content that I had previously received through my cable line, technically my Bell 5 line. And one of the things I did was I created a YouTube account that I could use to subscribe to channels. And one of the things that made me evangelical about cord cutting was the realization that if you feed in your interests into YouTube, it will reflect them back to you with content that interests you. And if all you're interested in is the Kardashians, oh yeah, there's a ton of YouTube crap for that. But if you have an eclectic selection of interests, you find yourself on the Vintage Space channel. And Vintage Space has become one of my all-time favorite channels for interesting content that only, I, I could only imagine you, sir, would absolutely lose your mind over because it's all about Mercury and the Apollo space programs. I would love that sort of stuff. I have watched From the Earth to the Moon with Tom Hanks I don't know how many times. I have watched First Man. I have watched Hidden Figures. I have watched all those films, all those TV shows, and I, and I love them. Amy Shira Title is uh, the brains behind it. Uh, she is vintage space. She's also an author uh, and uh, a space flight historian, and she joins us now. Former Torontonian, if I recall correctly. Yes, yes. Originally from Toronto. My whole family's still out there, and the Canadian accent will come out. <laughs> Usually when I say that. <laughs> so where are you? I'm, I'm, I'm currently in L.A. In your closet in L.A. In my closet in L.A., <laughs> to be very specific. Yeah. We should point out that she has a cat named Pete Conrad. If I need to explain that reference, then maybe this episode is not for you. You need to explain that reference because not everyone's going to get it, dude. We're not all Pete, nerds like you and Amy. Pete Conrad was an Apollo astronaut and he walked on the moon. You, 
of course, put out this fabulous new book, Fighting for Space, Two Pilots in Their Historic Battle for Female Space Flight, and whammo, COVID-19. Yeah. Perfect. If I can offer anyone life advice, try not to release a book two weeks before the world shuts down for a pandemic. Um, it's definitely been interesting. It's been interesting because... Um, you know, it's it's a narrative nonfiction. It's it's a deeply researched book right around the time when people are trying to escape the horror reality that is the world right now. So no one's reading nonfiction. Um, and if they are, they're reading about viruses. Um, and I have none of that to offer. So it's um, it's been tough out there. <laughs> you do have something to offer that no one else can provide, which is how to survive under quarantine. Because I've been to the Intrepid Air and Space Museum. I've seen the Gemini space capsules. Um, if you are- a Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Yes? We say Gemini. Gemini. Thank you. <laughs> If it's the constellation, it's Gemini. If it's the spacecraft, which I feel like I should point out I do have a tattoo of. Oh, you do? It's Gemini because NASA wanted to differentiate from the constellation. Fine. I actually did a YouTube video. I love that I have this video. Fine, 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 I fine. Took, I took a super clip of all of the, the public affairs officers from NASA of the era saying, and the crew of Gemini 9, Gemini 6, Gemini, 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 Gemini. It's just this like endless string of Geminis to be like, you guys believe me yet? <laughs> Perfect. This is why we have a space flight historian on the program i have been owned i'm useful <laughs> and and actually not only are you a space flight historian but if i understand it you're actually just a historian historian yeah my my background's history of science very broadly speaking and um because you can't really like major in space flight history you kind of have to self-narrow in the academic world into something as narrow as space flight history so i actually ended up doing a ton of like uh astronomy history like going into the pre-socratics and kind of the ancient greek discovery of the universe so like all of the things relating to space is kind of where my uh where my background is but i've always loved space but as kind of a, a more general historian i love the context of like mid-century Americana, cold, obviously Cold War politics, like all the things that give it context, because anything out of context like that just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And, you know, you start to look at everything in terms of the Cold War and had the Russians not blown off a hydrogen bomb in the early 1950s and started experimenting with uh, ICBMs, we wouldn't have ever gone to the moon. Oh, yeah, this is I, I I love when people are sort of like, you know, go into the the inspirational element of Apollo and start with, you know, if we, we you know, we did this once in the 60s, we need to do this again. It's for national pride. And I'm like, are you are we all forgetting that the Cold War was the rationale? Are we all forgetting that the only reason we went to the moon was to one up the Russians? Like this was a great technological achievement, but it was purely motivated in like a pissing contest. What was fascinating to me is how the Americans have managed to uh, turn the concept of the space race on its head. I found this meme image that I want to share with you guys uh, that sort of breaks that down. And it basically goes, first artificial satellite, Russian. First animal in space, Russian. First photographs, Russian. First person in space, Russian. First woman, Russian. First spacewalk, Russian. First spacecraft landing on the moon, Russian. First person on the moon, American. First spacecraft landing on another planet, Venus, Russian. First space station, Russian. First spacecraft landing on Mars, Russian. Winner of the space race, America. True. <laughs> All of that is true. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I feel like we, 
we like to ignore that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's a lot of like we want to just kind of put it in the context of America did it first and best and it it didn't. But there's you know, there's there's multiple lenses through which you can look at it. I mean, you can look at it that the the U.S. or the, the Soviet spacewalk was done in a in a technology that like was barely able to support a spacewalk. Um, they could fit two guys in there in spacesuits or three guys in there without suits. And the the um, the airlock was so difficult to use. Alexei Leonov, who did that spacewalk, actually had to bleed out his own oxygen to get back inside because his suit inflated. Wow. The Soviets were kind of duct tape and zip ties through a lot of these first. A lot of their first were very contrived. And America arguably kind of developed the technology that allowed for the major wins of the moon landing. But the, America also set the finish line in this race of the moon, knowing that it had a better chance of getting there than the Soviets. So it was a it like basically set the standard in a race that it couldn't lose. There were also rumors that persist to today that the Soviets actually sent people up before Yuri Gagarin. Yes. <laughs> and they were lost in space, including a woman. Yes. Um, there are there are so many rumors of the so-called phantom cosmonauts um, that they went up first, that they died. So the Soviet Union obviously covered it up to make it look like everything the Soviets were doing was perfect. And um I think a lot of that stems from there was an early unmanned mission uh, with a Sorry, that's that's my Pete Conrad. <laughs> um, an, an early, uh, yes, yeah, we, we, we have a cat named after an astronaut. Would like to be as loud as the real Pete Conrad. Um, using a, a flight with a, a, a crew, quote unquote, named uh, Ivan Ivanovich, who was just a, a dummy. Um, but to in one of the flights, his body was stuffed with rodents to get a sense of what was going to happen to a biological payload. And to test the communications, they actually um, played a choral recording from the spacecraft to Earth to test the communications. And people heard it and thought there were multiple people in space. So a lot of these rumors are kind of half rooted in truth. Um, but yeah, it's it, the other thing with the Soviets is, you know, it's hard to get to those records, if at all. Right. There were those brothers in it. it uh, there were those brothers in Italy who claimed to have actually um, recorded distress signals from these phantom cosmonauts. Right. Fascinating story. Yes. It gets into like it's international players and multiple languages and you're like i have no idea what actually happens anymore the idea of being the first american woman in space was a dream that more than one woman had if i understand i keep saying if i understand correctly because I, I feel so um <laughs> i have got imposter syndrome when i bring up facts <laughs> to you um, <laughs> But the upshot was, was that it was 13 women who were trying to become the first woman in space. But you focused in, in your book on two women specifically, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb. Why? Um, largely because it's kind of, to, to speak of myths and half-truths about the early space age, um, it's kind of a myth and a half-truth that there were 13 women vying to be the first woman in space. That's the, the neat story that is kind of packaged nicely. It's a great like feminist epic. They have a nice moniker of the Mercury 13, which, by the way, was given to them by a 95 uh, Dateline producer for a segment. So it wasn't even something that was really them. Because it wasn't NASA in the first place. It wasn't NASA at all. NASA was like, shut it down. <laughs> like like Liz Lemon style, shut it down. What really happened was these two women, Jackie Cobb... <laughs> 
or gosh, their names are so I, I do this all the time and it's really embarrassing. The JC and the JC initials every time it gets me. And I wrote mm. a book about this. So I should stop doing this. It's really that the story of these two women, uh, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb, are trying to control a woman in space program that doesn't actually exist. So it becomes this really interesting she said, she said that plays out in the media like a vintage version of a Twitter war. So Jackie is the elder of the two. She's 25 years older. She is, I mean, arguably, but not arguably at all, the best pilot of the 20th century, the most decorated. She saved LBJ's life. Uh, Jaeger taught her how to fly through the sound barrier. Uh, she's friends with Eisenhower. Wow. Uh, first woman, by the way, to fly through the sound barrier. She led the Women's Air Force service pilots in the Second World War. She was breaking all the barriers. She was also married to a gentleman by the name of Floyd Bostick Odlum, who was one of the robber barons who built America. He was really like one of the 10 richest men in the Depression who only made more money as that, that uh, crisis persisted. So she is super well-connected and immensely talented and then this younger woman finds herself in the right place at the right time to take the um astronaut medical exams that the men took in 1959 so this is that scene in the right stuff where the guy who plays al shepherd is running down the hall with enema bag it's that but she did it and um it really is this interesting case of the media running with a story because the doctor who who ran the tests, who, by the way, is a very good friend of Jackie's and Floyd, Jackie's husband, is not only funding the clinic that did the testing, but is president of the board of directors of the clinic. So their hands are in that pie. <laughs> when Randy Lovelace announces that Jerry Cobb did the tests, he says a woman has passed the test given to the astronauts and the media picks up with there's a woman astronaut. The whole thing was never actually announced as a female astronaut program. Jerry was kind of mistakenly given that moniker by the media, and she did nothing to change that opinion. She ran with it, hoping that if she got enough public support, she could, like, force NASA into launching her into space. Because, to use her terminology, she felt that her God-given purpose on Earth was to be the first woman in space. This is 1960-61. This is, this is 1960 going into 1961. So so gradually more women get involved because Randy Lovelace, being a doctor, doesn't knows that one data point is not enough and uh, brings more women into test courtesy of Jerry, but also courtesy of Jackie because they're old friends and he's been using her her data for decades. So you end up with this like hodgepodge of women who did some medical tests. And then they suddenly, Jerry starts parading around like they're this, you know, yaya sisterhood of the traveling space pants, which they're not. They did not agree. <laughs> they did not all back Jerry as their representative. She just assumed the role of spokesperson. A lot of them actually backed Jackie and said, we agree with you. If you think this is not the right time, if you think this is the wrong way, we agree with you. And it got all the way to a, a, set, a congressional subcommittee hearing in which it was just like a giant sexist fight that ended with nothing. And it, the whole thing just kind of fizzled away. Wasn't Jackie, though, um, accused of essentially deep sixing this program once she realized she likely would not be the first woman in space? I've never heard the phrase deep sixing. <laughs> You ever heard the phrase deep sixed? No. What? <laughs> Where did that? Well, you bury people six feet deep. Oh. Oh, I've n I've never heard that phrase. That's a good one. I like that. Um. So I think there's I think there's a lot of things 
that kind of come into play. And a lot of it, this is what I think is really fun, is that, um, you know, w- women have egos just as much as men do, especially when there are women as powerful as these two. So for sure, Jackie had some ego about her, about, you know, she was in her 50s at this point. She's too old. She's medically unfit for space flight. She's never going to go. What she wanted was to kind of be the, the decider. Like, if I can't go, I'm at least going to be the one to pick the first woman so that I get the credit by, like, association. Um, and that's kind of what she was trying to do. She's trying to start like a big testing program, but she was also a woman who understood to pl- how to play the game as a woman in Washington. It, don't forget, this is 1962. This is before the second wave of feminism. This is before the women's lib. So it was, you know, to declare oneself a feminist was akin to saying, I am a communist. You couldn't even do that. So she understood that you have to kind of play into the system to get what you want out of it and knew that saying, I want to be the first woman wasn't going to do anything, but saying, I want to gather all the data on women might actually help them because then as soon as NASA was like, we need a woman, she could be like, here's your report with all your data. Here's 200 women. Pick one. We have everything ready for you in a package. And it all just went away. And it all, it just kind of fizzled and went away. Um, It was supposed to be a three-day hearing and it ended with like a very vaguely worded recommendation to NASA to consider bringing women in at some point in the future. And uh, the third day was canceled and uh, Jerry kind of fell into a depression and went to fly as a missionary pilot in South America. And Jackie went off and beat her own record of fastest woman on the planet. Different reactions. <laughs> Meanwhile, Valentina Tereshkova becomes the first woman in space. Yeah. And she's Russian. And that's like three weeks from now or so. What do you say you come back um, and we talk about the first Russian woman in space? I'm super down to talk about the first Russian woman in space. Yeah, she's a, well, we'll save it. But Tereshkova is such an interesting story and it, and overlaps with Jerry in a really interesting way, too. I don't know. We can save that, too. <laughs> Are you a fan of alternate histories? Um, it depends on the alternate history. Here we go. Do you know yeah, where I'm going? Here with we this? go. <laughs> no, I know. There's I the can, plug I, for I, Apple I TV. Know where you here, think I'm Apple going, TV. I... Here it comes. <laughs> oh God. I believe that this nation should commit itself to landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. After thousands of years gazing up in the heavens and dreaming of this day, a man is about to set foot on the moon. Across the world, people wait with bated breath. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a live signal. There he is. The shock across the nation at this event is just indescribable. The Soviet cosmonaut has become the first to set foot on the moon. When I I started doing the research on your book, um, The Mercury 13, it was after I had seen For All Mankind. I thought there actually was a woman's space program put on by NASA and managed as a proper program. But I have to find out that, no, that's just Netflix nonsense. Yeah. And uh, of course, Molly Cobb is in homage to Jerry Cobb. And if Molly, if Molly Cobb was a real person, there's no way she would have picked us an astronaut because with that attitude, no one wants to be locked in a spacecraft with her. Um, I like alternate histories as kind of a thought experiment. There's a lot of really interesting moments in the space race where you can create a change. Like if if uh, Sergei Korolev, kind of the 
sort of the Soviet equivalent to Warner von Brown, the chief designer who really was like the decider. If he hadn't died in 1966, could have been a very different end to the 1960s. Could have been very interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of those moments. I love the moment of having the Soviets land on the moon first. I love it because we've all seen the pictures of everyone at NASA with the tiny American flags and that celebration and taking starting a series, taking that away, I thought was a really fun way to start. But then it just I felt it went off the rails so big, so fast. And I was just like, OK, OK, there's a lot happening here that is just like for me. I, this, this is where, like, my history nerd comes into play too hard is, like, if you're going to do alternate history, at least make it realistic instead of making it just, like, and here's our here's our pivot point, And then we're just, like, in fiction land, like, completely with no bearing on anything. All right, then let's let's do a hard left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Werner von Braun, you mentioned him, of course, the architect of the space program by and large, I think it's fair to say in the United States. Yep. You did a lot of research and have historically had to do so as well. But you've also got a connection in the book to this as an issue as a Nazi. Yeah. Not you as a Nazi, but as him as <laughs> yes. a Nazi. Yeah. Um, yeah, Von Braun is like the hardest person to deal with in a lot of ways. He's actually uh, plays very, I dealt a lot with him in my first book, Breaking the Chains of Gravity, if I may shamelessly promote myself right now. Um, and it was it was really interesting to kind of go through his life in Germany before Hitler took power, because as a 20-year-old engineer, the German army, which is separate from Hitler at this point in, in 1930 or 1931, offered him all the money he could want, a free PhD and free reign to develop his technology as a 20-year-old. I mean, that's that's such an, when you put it into perspective of like, of course, you're not going to look at the broader political picture when you're 20 and you're being offered this. You start to kind of understand and, and this is in no way to apologize for war crimes, but it, it starts to explain the decisions that he made a little bit more, which is why I think looking at, at a figure's early life is actually really important to understand what they do later in life. And Van Brown was the ultimate, like, amoral, self-interested person, I think. He wanted to develop rockets. The German army gave him a way to do it. And, you know, the SS arrested him for treason and he was he was arrested by his own government. And that's why he surrendered to the United States. But it just became this thing of, well, this is the best thing for me personally, regardless of anything else happening. Um, he's a, yeah, he's a really complicated character to deal with and very, very multifaceted. And it was, yeah, complicated. So at the end of World War Two, Germany's in ruins. All these yes. people who were developing these Weapons of mass destruction are offered an opportunity to start a new life with a clean slate in the United States to develop technologies that would benefit the Americans against basically the rest of the world. Of course you'd take it. Absolutely yes. you'd take it. It's it's a self-preservation thing. You know, the, the, the German army offers you this and you're 20. Of course you're going to take it. The the Third Reich kind of comes up and takes over that. And it's like either do this or die. Of course, you're going to do it. You see a way to continue your technology without, again, dying. Of course, you're going to do it. And the, there's, the, a, there's a lot of. Yeah. The, the other thing, interesting thing, too, is that at the conclusion of World War Two, the Americans uh, invalidated all the patents that were filed for in Japan and Germany. So they could take the technology without having to worry about paying off anybody for the use of this tech. Yes. And I, I feel like a lot of it was we're going to take this as intellectual reparations. Like we're, we're stealing all the things, including your brains. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Are, are you a science fiction fan at all, or are you just rooted in history and reality? I'm pretty rooted in history. The science, the science fiction that I gravitate to is the stuff that is sort of within the realm of reality or so far off that it doesn't matter. So historical fiction type yeah. stuff. You're, you're keen on Downton Abbey, but you wouldn't be crazy about Ali yes. G. Yeah. I, uh, one thing, like, I, I can't, I can't get past anything with a spacecraft that's not spinning that has gravity. Oh, are, are, <laughs> just are, okay. are you the hang up of all time. But, I'm sorry. Are, yeah. are, are you like me that you cringe every time there's an external shot in space and it makes an explosion makes a noise? Yes. Oh, I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. There's a, there's a lot of things. It's just like. Okay. <laughs> just, no, they're so like I can only suspend my disbelief so far. But yeah. you know, you give me. If, I don't know if you've seen the movie Moon. Like yes. that's excellent science fiction. Sam Bell reporting to Central. Everything running smoothly. Over and out. Rock and roll. God bless America. Good morning, Sam. Do you want me to cut your hair? Industries remains the number one provider of clean energy worldwide due to the hard work of people like you. <laughs> Three years is a long haul, you know. I know you're really lonely up there, but I'm proud of you. Two weeks to go, Sam. Two weeks to go, buddy. I'm going home. Looks like we got a live one. I'm gonna go out. Okay, Sam. I wish I could see again for the first time. I haven't watched it a second time because I don't want to ruin it. Like some of these things are like just close enough to reality that I'm like, oh, this is great. And some things are like, I can't. Let, okay, let's go through some. Moon 2001. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a huge amount of like 80s sci-fi, especially that I missed. But this is what I'm talking about here. <laughs> We've got the definitive 80s sci-fi documentary that's hit Kickstarter. It hit Kickstarter like, 12 hours ago with a goal of uh, about 32,000 British pounds. And in Canadian dollar equivalent, that's about $55,000. I'm watching the number go up. Three wow. quarters of a million bucks. That's nuts. As we're sitting here on this screen, the number is actually increasing. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I feel like the 80s was a really interesting time for science fiction because it's, um, I was actually just having this conversation about 90s spy movies, but I think it kind of tracks like, like <laughs> the 90s was when you didn't, you had enough gadgets to make it cool, but not enough gadgets that it was all just hacking into Wi-Fi. So it's just people on computers. Like you had to be in the air ducts, but you still had like your weird little pocket computer things. I feel like 80s for sci-fi was like 90s for spy movies where you have enough of a grounding in understanding the real science, but you're sort of, you know, from a modern perspective, vintage enough that it's like your gadgets are, are just off to where it's like you're, you're stretching it, but it's in a fun way. I don't know. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. It's a classic era. 
I, I agree with you. It's kind of like some of the James Bond movies that introduced gadgets that we would later see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Star Trek did that with the iPad. Okay, Star Trek 2. Okay. With the flip phone in the original series. Yeah. Well, that's what I was just going to say, that it's that era of sci-fi, too, that sort of inspired a lot of people to work on things that then became reality. So... I'm, I'm going through the list of the various uh, <laughs> options here on this. If you want to be a Kickstarter backer, you, and there's only seven hours to go as of the recording of this. So there's really not much you can do, but there's a remarkable amount um, that you can mine from when it comes to this content. Like just Blade Runner alone. Mm. Hmm. What, neither of you agree on that? No, uh, the original Blade Runner was supposed to be set in what, 2019? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it kind of, Kind of lost its its luster for me. Two twenty uh, two thousand ten, the year we make contact. I thought that was a remarkably good movie. The Abyss, I thought was a remarkably good movie. Another example of technology that came true: the ingestible liquid to allow you to be at the depths. Yes, I, I've missed so many of the eighty sci fi movies. I think it's a. Com- I honestly think it's a combination of my my age and yes. being brought up on older movies. In that, my my mom my mom's big on classics, therefore I am big on classics. What's a classic? I, oh, like Singing in the Rain is my favorite movie. Oh dear! I saw Singing <laughs> in the Rain for the very first time at Roy Thompson Hall with my oh, wife and daughter, nice. where they perform it live while they play it up on the big screen. Oh, that's awesome! And it was surreal. Yeah, like, yeah. Of course, my thirteen year old. I used, she hated every minute of it. It was like boring and slow and none of it made sense. And why is everybody suddenly singing? I mean, that movie does make absolutely no sense until you know why it was made in the first place. And then it starts to come together. But yeah. Oh, you know a story I don't. Yeah. No, this this um, it was was it? Oh, gosh, I should know this. I think it was an M, I think it was MGM. But the uh, the uh, producers studio gave gave this this husband and wife writing team the task and said, here's all these classic songs in the 20s. Make a movie with them. And that was the only guidance. And they had all these songs that do not make any sense together and had to try to figure out how to make them all fit into something that was somewhat linear. And because so many of them just like had no bearing within the lyrics to create a storyline, that's why it became making the movie. So that beautiful girls, that weird thing about fashion is shooting a movie scene. So that's why the the, the whole thing is not linear, because the, the guideline was make the songs work. And it absolutely blew me away that yeah. the film was called Singing in the Rain. And the reason why you're singing in the rain is because they've just managed to come up with a, a plan for that movie that they're going to make. And the guy leaves at the end of the, the all-nighter. And yeah. He's so super happy and jazzed. He doesn't care that it's raining, so he's singing in the rain. Yeah. But it, it has almost nothing to do with the plot line whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but also, welcome to Gene Kelly movies. <laughs> yeah. And, and now we have movies like Mamma Mia. So, Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm, so I'm, I'm now out of vodka. You're out of vodka. Uh, Amy's still sequestered in her closet with her cat slash catronaut. Yeah, he's sticking his paw under the door a lot, so he's he's having fun. Catstronaut. Yeah, I need to get him one of those clear backpacks so I can, you know. Exactly. This has been fascinating. So thank you so much. Will you come back and, and tell us all about the Russians? I would love to. Oh, I'm a big. I love the Russian. I was actually at the Cosmonaut Museum in Moscow. <gasps> So cool. I've never been. I'm so jealous. Okay, so we have the first dog is Laika. What are the next two dogs? Uh, Belka and Strelka. They have them there. Wait, are they stuffed? Are they stuffed like Lennon? Yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. How are they posed? 
Uh, they're posed by looking up at you and from their little capsule, very, very happy, thinking, this is really cool. We're pioneers. Can oh. I have a biscuit? Oh, yeah, I know. That is so creepy. My wife broke down and cried. Yeah. Amy, thank you again. Thank you guys so much. Where, where can we get your book? Oh, uh, the book is available uh, on Amazon, uh, amazon.ca as well. Um, of course, available through all of your uh, local bookstores and indie bookstores that are mainly still delivering in this strange time. Um, you can also get the uh, ebook as well as audiobook narrated by me uh, through whatever provider you prefer. And that is Fighting for Space, Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight by Amy Shira Title. She joined us from Los Angeles. Thanks, guys. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Had this come across your social media radar screen? This is Don't Stop Believing by Rob Wells and Friends? No, why? Oh, let me play this for you now, because you've got to check this out. Because you know that Don't Stop Believing" is not only one of my all-time favorite tracks, um, but we did a, a, a breakdown of the track with a longtime friend of the show, Brent Bodrug, and that was one of my all-time favorite episodes of Geeks and Beats. So let me show you this. All right, let's try this. is this guy has crowdsourced people all over the world singing Don't Stop Believing by Journey and put it all together. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. There's some pretty famous voices that come up in this. Just a city boy. Double neck guitar. Yeah, nice job. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of Canadians in this. Uh, in this, I mean, they're all almost all Canadian. thinking well we're canadian maybe we should you know ring up this guy and see if he's interested in coming on the show talking about how you actually crowdsource the creation of a song like this and just like because it's got to be like herding cats this is really cool this is really well done yes i would like to talk to this gentleman so i fired him off a, a, a direct message on twitter saying, hey, um, I have this podcast with co-host, you know, radio legend Alan Cross. We're wondering if you'd like to be able to come on and, and talk about this. And his response was, you and I went to college together. Did you really? <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I have, 
I, I have no recollection of, I, frankly, I have no recollection of college by and large, but I have no recollection of Rob Wells specifically. And he had said that he had only been in the program for a short time before he realized radio wasn't his thing. And he went on to music production like this. Well, he did well. All right. So let, let's, let's get him on and we'll, we'll talk about Don't Stop Believing and, and how you make this magic. Yeah, this is really well done. All right. Sounds Extremely good. well. Nick Lachey? He got Nick Lachey? Yes. Okay, I want to know more. If you go to geeksandbeats.com, you can support the show by becoming a member of the world's worst intern program. And Alan knows what makes it the world's worst. Yes, you pay us. You do no work. However, we will vouch for you as if you have done some work. You may put us on a resume and uh, we will answer any reference calls with something in the affirmative. Including on LinkedIn. We actually, if you pay us a buck an episode to work on the show um, to help support us, you can go to LinkedIn and you can register as an employee. Put it on your resume. We'll back you up on it, as we will for Craig Aiken, Craig Glassford, C. Scott, Dan Rosen, uh, Ian Long, Jeff Carberly, Kyle Philstrom, uh, Mark Wagner, uh, Marty Steele, Matthew Bartram, Michael LeBlanc, uh, Mike McDonald, Mike Wise, and a few others as well. So thank you very much for helping us out. If you're not a fan of Patreon, and some are not, you can uh, help us out via PayPal, too, uh, as Daniel Hopkins, Scott Coast, Craig Manette, Christopher Hazen, Grant Ridge, Greg David, and others have done as well. And uh, it helps keep the show on and us off to CES 2021, if they have it. No, 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 no. Not unless there's a vaccine. No, 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 no. Really? You will be unwilling to leave your house if we don't have a vaccine in time for CES? We've talked about the CES flu before. We dodged a bullet this year. This coming year, I'm not so... First of all, I'm not so sure there's going to be a CES. Mm. And if there is, it's going to be very small. And if it is very small, that might reduce our risk a little bit. But I'm still not prepared to uh, go that far. Yeah, we could show up with N95 masks, or, or, or better yet, the N99s, the one with the big tubes on the side, and we could act like we're taking away asbestos. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.